Science and technology are an increasingly large part of our lives. We take a look at the interface between science and history, economics, philosophy, ethics, religion, and culture. That's Spark Dialogue Podcast, where it all comes together. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. If you have ever bought a home, or worse, tried to build your own, you know that buildings are expensive. You have to bring in wood, concrete, drywall, and plumbing. Now imagine you're trying to build a house somewhere remote, like the deserts of Africa or the South American jungle. Or imagine you're trying to rebuild after a natural disaster, in a situation where roads may be blocked and material may be hard to come by. Today we're talking to Keegan Kirkpatrick. Keegan is the founder and CEO of a company called Redworks Construction Technologies Incorporated. The idea that Keegan and his co-workers are developing is to actually use 3D printers to print something as large as a building using materials found right at the building site. What's more, this could be used to build structures as somewhere remote as Mars. Imagine that, being able to build infrastructure on a different planet without needing to import material from Earth. So welcome to the podcast, Keegan. Thanks for having me. Okay, so right now there are no buildings on Mars, but we do have some habitats in space. What are they like? To put it generously, they're multi-billion dollar titanium soup cans. Current habitats in space are designed decades in advance. They are built to last any conceivable condition. And while that is a overwhelming achievement for engineering, it's not really practical for long-term settlement anywhere. I mean, if you can imagine, if what if we tried to build homes on Earth this way? It had to work just perfectly forever, because if anything went wrong, there'd be no way to fix it. The idea behind Redworks when we first got started was if we're going to build in the most austere environment imaginable, which was the surface of Mars, uh, based on how NASA phrased the, the habitat challenge we originally entered, the only solution for us was to make what's called an in-situ 3D printing system. In-situ is just a fancy word for on-site or indigenous materials. In other words, how can we figure out how to make any building material we'd need using just the dirt that we'd find on-site? Now, this is something that has been fiddled with a little bit in the past. NASA has been looking into it since really the late 70s, early 80s, but it was never approached as a truly holistic solution for construction. In other words, no one ever looked at it as a, as a way to be able to make an entire habitat. It was always, oh, we can make a shell of the habitat, oh, we can make part of it, or maybe some replacement parts. For us, it was all about how can we make a 3D printing system that can genuinely replace the need to be dependent on resupply from Earth. And this is something that is going that is hugely important for long-term use in space. And while that is the origins of the technology, the idea has a great deal of merit here on Earth, especially if you're building in the more austere environments that we're familiar with, say in deserts or areas damaged by natural disasters. If you can limit your supply chain to the build site itself, you take away all the limits on what you can actually build. What kind of locations are you looking to perhaps use this technology right now on Earth? Well, uh, it's not in the field yet. The technology we're looking to introduce in the next year, we expect initially to be used in Southern California, Arizona, and Nevada, dry climates that have a great and growing demand for high-end custom real estate. So really, really expensive properties that have some very detailed and unusual architecture that you don't normally find out there in the world. But where we see it doing good on Earth for the long term 
would be in areas devastated by natural disasters like Puerto Rico. If we could have gotten a machine like ours, which is still in the lab right now, but if we could have gotten that out into the field the day after the hurricane, it would have given builders the ability to at least prop up a temporary road out of the same sand that sloughed away all the infrastructure that was already there. So you could get everything that couldn't be made on site to the people that needed it immediately. There's also a great deal of opportunity to be able to use this in areas that are more generally underdeveloped, that tend to be hotspots for refugee camps, that tend to be areas that do not have a lot of the basic infrastructure we take for granted here in the more developed parts of the world. If you could go into some little village in Africa or central Eurasia and be able to stand up basic housing, you're quite literally making the bedrock for a more sustainable and more more secure way to live than what a lot of people around the world uh, currently have access to today. So how would this work then? You would take this printer to these places and make these three-dimensional bricks, but how would you envision this happening? How would it take the material that's in situ there and turn it into the final structure? Well, the current build that we're looking to put together in the next year is essentially just a very large traditional 3D printer on a little Cartesian gantry. If you've ever seen one in the lab, you kind of already have a working idea of how this thing would actually operate. Except your feedstock, instead of being a little ribbon of plastic, is literally the dirt pulled from off-site. The dirt would then go into a hopper, which would go inside the printhead, where the actual heating and fusion of the material into a solid state occurs. The best way to describe it is to think like having your own private multi-use volcano, I guess would be the shortest way to say it. It's your own personal volcano that you can use to make any type of solid rock that you need completely in the field from any design you could possibly want. So you could drop this thing off out of the back end of a pickup truck and instantly start making all the build material you'd need to stand up a house, a hospital, a school, whatever you'd need. Now, in more advanced cases, what we hope this technology will eventually evolve into would be to put it on a completely mobile platform so that rather than someone just making the basic build materials they need, this thing can scoop up all the material it would need, dump it in the back of a hopper on top of itself, and then with a little robotic arm, continuously print an entire habitat, a 3D printer outside of the box. When we think of buildings that we're used to, they're made of components like brick and concrete and drywall. How does this 3D printed material stand up to the environment? Is it just as strong? Does it last just as long? We're actually still hoping to do some more wide-ranging tests on this matter. Uh, We don't really have a whole lot of data on how it stands up to fire resistance just yet, though we're pretty confident that anything that has to be made out of uh, what is essentially artificial volcanic material would be pretty tough. But our friends of ours out in Hawaii at the uh, Pacific International Space Center for Exploration Systems, also known as Pisces, have been doing some research onto similar material for many years now, and so has NASA out at JPL. Their studies have shown that the strength of this material is about on par with residential concrete. Okay. So also when you have a building, there are a lot of components in it, like there are pipes, there are wires, there are windows. What about this? Would you still need to get these materials from elsewhere, or can you print something that's uh, similar to these? At the moment, anything electrically rated would have to be imported. There's really not a whole lot of ways around that. But for pipes and drainage systems, there's some interesting opportunities there. Now, when we first got put together as a team to try to solve this as a problem for how do you build on Mars, we kind of had to approach 
a lot more challenges than as a pure manufacturing company that we have to deal with today. What I mean by that is we had to figure out how to design a habitat that could operate with no resupply at all. In other words, all the utilities had to be built on site with the exception of electrical. And so we discovered, you know, one advantage of working with a 3D printing system is that you can essentially print your wall with the pipes and drainage systems and conduit lines already built into it. You'd have to snake through your electrical, sure, but now you've got all your actual plumbing literally built into the wall itself. So you can go a couple of interesting ways with that. You can either make just a very traditional drainage system that just allows water to move to where it needs to go, or, and this is what we're most excited by, you can actually have that drainage system go to locations that are normally not practical with existing plumbing or just a little too complicated to where the pipes and conduits in the wall itself might be able to flow to garden boxes so that gray water can be re-recycled for being able to create new plant space or can be sent to uh, toilets and receptacles. There's a lot of interesting opportunities when you don't have to necessarily import the components themselves. Yeah, another thing I'm curious about is you, you talked about this technology potentially being used in California, but then you also mentioned Puerto Rico or, you know, you go to places all around the world, their soil and their dirt's going to be very different. Mm. Does the process of 3D printing change depending on the composition of the dirt you're using? Well, obviously we haven't tested everything yet. <laughs> there, there's a lot of dirt in the world we still have to cover. But from the samples that we have tested, which have been from all around the country to our own backyard, so far, the performance has been pretty consistent. Uh, the only materials we are aware of that are absolute no-go uh, are what are, are just pure topsoil, which we knew going in was not going to work because it's made out of, it's all biologics. So it's all, it's all carbon-based, not silicon-based. And our material works best when it's silicates. The other material that does not really work are what are called calcium carbonate sands. Now, you only really find these near coral reefs. But as far as we can tell, if you mix it in with normal silica sand, which you can find once you go between three and six feet down in most places, it will that will essentially act as the binder and it will still be a useful build material. So while we haven't run everything just yet, we're very confident that there aren't too many places that our machine couldn't go and still be useful to be able to make viable build material. In the future, like what kind of buildings do you envision this making? Would it be mostly low homes or could you build, hypothetically, could you build a skyscraper or something very large <laughs> with this technology? Well, I expect for the first several years it to be used almost exclusively in residential construction and in some cases mixed use, multi-story construction. There's uh, a few projects we're looking at right now that employ, that aren't skyscrapers by any means, but are much larger than say a residential home. But it is my, absolutely my hope that eventually we will have a system that will be not only able to make just the masonry material itself, but be able to work around any other infrastructure and any other material that needs to be brought on site to where you could 3D print a skyscraper. What I'm most excited by is what I'm being seeing done by other additive manufacturing companies, like say Desktop Metal. I just got back from MIT Lincoln Lab and we had this big discussion on the future of 3D printing in general. And Desktop Metal was there talking about the applications for parts manufacturing for the aerospace business. And I was really keen on what this could be used for as well. If we could one day have, you know, a company like mine and then a you know, metal manufacturing company like ours able to 3D print in tandem. So imagine if you had someone who had a 3D printer that could not own that could print, say, 
a really advanced rebar as we are printing our you know completely on-site solution to concrete or better yet what what if we could one day add in a feature to our machine to where we could source the steel that we'd need for rebar entirely on site so if we can do something like that just keep pushing this technology forward to where we can make all the build material we'd need completely in the field construction wouldn't just change from a human living perspective it would change from an overall impact on the environment perspective buildings would no longer be essentially imported and assembled they'd be grown I could see that there could be a lot of uses for this technology in places that are, like you said, really hard to access or really poor locations, or you mentioned before, places that have been hit by a natural disaster. Absolutely. For areas hit by natural disasters and more generally underdeveloped areas, it's essentially a solution to skip over all the, not only local infrastructure, but really all the industrial infrastructure you need to stand up the things we take for granted here in the more developed parts of the world. If you can go into a country and not have to build concrete factories, don't have to build steel smelters, and don't even have to build the ports to import all that stuff, you're making it possible to essentially stand up the quality of life much faster than and for far less capital than has ever been thought possible before. Out of curiosity, can you print other things besides building, like roads or bridges or other things like infrastructure? Infrastructure is a very important part of all this. And in fact, the very first project we expect to use this for is a literal stepstone project. So there is a client, I wish I could say names right now, but he has a backyard remodel he always been wanting to do for years that involves the use of these large concentric semicircular like crescent moon shaped papers. And he's been unable to get them done for what basically boils down to a fire code problem. Essentially, he'd have to have custom molds made for each for each uh for each paver pour those out of concrete and then he'd have his papers on site the problem is is that he needs so many molds that they would have to be stored in their own separate building that would have to be coded up to make sure it's not a fire hazard it's a regulatory it's it's a regulatory nightmare for something incredibly simple for us we can just go in and print them on site and we are very very keen on seeing this technology being used to be able to make not only roads, but also wind barriers, but also retaining walls. I mean, the possibilities are quite literally endless. One thing that jumped into my mind when I was reading about your company is this would be great technology for places that are really remote Absolutely. and hard to access. One idea that jumped out at me was using it to build observatories on top of very isolated mountains that are really hard to access with conventional means bringing trucks up these big mountains. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. That's actually the first thing we were told, the first real problem that was facing the construction industry that they felt we could address, especially in more high-end developments. So without getting too down into the minutia of how the construction industry has changed since the, the last housing market crash... Uh, it basically boils down to this. Project sites are getting much, much smaller and they're being put in much more remote locations. This is partly due to the fact that more and more flat land is being eaten up in more high value areas and that as custom homes and more high end developments become the priority, there's obviously a need to be in scenic areas and those are by nature you know, difficult to get to. You, you can't have ocean view or you know, cliffside property without necessarily being on a cliff. So being able to just drop something in that can build in a very remote location is a major advantage to high-end commercial construction. But beyond that, there's also 
projects like what you just described out in Hawaii. Now, tragically, we do not have the technology to be able to make a extremely high resolution optical mirror completely on site. Uh, right. What I would love to do that, but unfortunately not. But if we could at least stand up just the basic infrastructure, that would go a long way. Yeah, the buildings. And- yes. And for a lot of countries, go beyond human living and look purely at economic opportunity of resources. So in Afghanistan and in certain parts of Africa, uh, even here in the even here in the U.S., you'll occasionally hear about you know these huge discoveries of resource deposits, or you know a lot of air, rare earth metals were found in this you know one little location, and then you never hear about how it ever got accessed again. And nine times out of ten, uh, the reason that it hasn't been developed is because the location was just too difficult to get material to; it wasn't worth the effort. If you had the ability to stand up all that infrastructure right there on site, you'd give a lot of countries that could use a new stream of revenue for their economies the ability to access opportunities that were never once you know, possible for them. So talking about remote locations, of course, Mars is probably one of the most remote locations we're going to have. So if people are thinking about building materials on Mars and bringing things from Earth, how long would it take for a delivery from Earth to arrive at Mars? Depends on what you're using to get there. Uh, so uh, I'm an aerospace engineer by training and trade, and I try to keep up with this as best I can. So if you were going off of the standard launch vehicles NASA currently uses, usually the travel time is between three and six months, closer to six than three. According to SpaceX and the estimates that we're hearing out of all these new launch providers, uh, new launch technologies promise to get us to Mars between three months to as little as one, maybe even a couple of weeks. So as technology develops you're looking at a travel time that is closer to, say, crossing the ocean in during the 19th and 18th centuries than it is than right now, which is, you know, the equivalent of circumnavigating the Earth several times. Uh, but you're still waiting around for months for resupply. And that's assuming that Mars is at its closest approach with Earth. Uh, it's worth remembering that if Mars is on the opposite side of the sun, it can take over a year or more to get material out there. So by nature, anyone who builds on Mars has to be to some degree self-sustainable. I imagine it's also incredibly expensive as well to move things from Earth to Mars. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. Now, uh, part of that is just due to the nature of launch costs. Uh, the simplest way to think of the space industry is to put it in context. Imagine if every time you had to take a flight to Europe, uh, 90% of the aircraft was unusable after that one flight. If that were the case, your average co- ticket cost for a transatlantic flight would be on the order of millions of dollars, not you know a few hundred to a few thousand. Yeah. Uh, so that's partly it. It's also due to the fact that if you can't just fix whatever you have on site with what's already there, you have to build something that has to last for a very long time. And by nature, it has to, anything that is built to last for an, under any conceivable circumstance is going to take a long time to develop, which means it's going to be a very expensive thing just in terms of the human labor hours that have to go into it and the more advanced resources that have to be made to build it. But if you have something that's essentially just allowing you to go back to the Stone Age, and if there's a crack in your habitat, you can just patch it with the same 3D printer you use to build it, 
you cut down the cost substantially. Using this 3D printer on Mars, it seems like a very natural progression. At some point in the future, you'll be testing it on Earth. It's, it'll be building great buildings. You just move it to Mars. So we talked about all the different types of soil that you are testing here on Earth. And of course, when you go to Mars, the dirt is going to be different there. So is that going to be a new problem that you'll have to work on to try to build materials with this new type of material? Well, I'm proud to say we actually have tested uh, Martian regolith simulants, so oh. fake Mars dirt, <laughs> which is what NASA makes and is surprisingly easy to get a hold of. Uh, okay. It's actually sourced from around the Mojave these days. There, every few years, NASA uh, cooks up a new batch of Martian regolith simulants, and it gets better and better every time, And but they always have to pull a kind of dirt base to make everything out of it. It happens to be in our own backyard these days. But we've got the regular simulants, and we've ran that through our machine a couple of times. Uh, we still haven't done full-blown destructive testing, but we do know we can make a fairly sturdy stone material using what is essentially Martian dirt. So we're quite confident that what's available on Mars can absolutely work on Earth. I mean, it really was a full circle with this project. We started out trying to solve this problem purely in theory for Mars, found a way to be able to make it work as something that's very practical and immediately useful here on Earth. And we now have viability to know that if the day ever came, we could absolutely give our machines to the right people to start building the first homes on, on, on the same planet we started this whole project for in the first place. The environment on Mars, too, is also going to be very different. Mm. It's very, very dry. You're having a different atmosphere. You have different temperatures. You even have thermal swings, different gravity. So what about this? Would you have to make a structure differently uh, on a fundamental level than you would on Earth? Yes, you would. Not too differently. Mars has about half Earth's gravity. Uh, it's actually a little less than half, closer to 40%. Uh, the atmosphere is much lower. So how do I explain this best? It's kind of the opposite problem that you have on a submarine, or if you tried to send like a balloon down to the bottom of the ocean, rather than uh, the balloon being crushed, in this case, it would, it would expand to, it would literally pop. So you have to make very sturdy walls that can hold in atmosphere that is, you know, as dense as what we have on Earth. For the low gravity, you can actually take advantage of that a little bit more. Uh, there's a phenomenon in 3D printing in zero-G, and if you ever have the opportunity to talk to our partners over at Maiden Space, they would be able to discuss, to discuss this in far greater detail than I could. Yeah, we actually had them on the podcast already. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Uh, well, our friends at Maiden Space have often talked about how printing in microgravity, there's some phenomena you have to keep track of, but in theory, you can actually use the lower gravity in such a way to where, since the material won't fall in on itself as fast, you can potentially print in kind of a freeform manner, not just in in two D. You know, you know, three D printing is you know kind of a misnomer almost because it's essentially two D printing one layer at a time. Whereas this, you could think of it more like kind of you know drawing in in free space. Uh, it, it's an interesting problem. Now. We've been lucky enough to where we've been working with Mars City Design down here in Southern California on the next phase of the NASA 3D Print Habitat Challenge, which I'm uh, proud to say that we made it to the top 10 of the last two phases of the challenge. And the design that Team Alpha, which is what Mars City and Redworks are working on collectively, what we've been able to learn in the context of this Team Alpha project has been how to kind of design a habitat that would have to operate in this way, that would have to have a shell strong enough to support uh, an atmosphere on the inside of it. We've also been playing around a little bit more with how you can make use of 3D printing to actually make the environment work for you. So 
the design, if you ever get a chance to see it, looks kind of like a pineapple. It has these uh, it has these gilled ridges all across its surface that are designed to make use of any kind of natural turbulence in the air and catch any airborne debris, which in the case of Mars is only the dust and fines that cover the surface, and actually slowly but surely build up a layer of dirt around the habitat to serve as an additional layer of radiation shielding against the you know natural elements that are on the surface of Mars. So 3D printing not only offers you a way to be able to build the basics of what you need to survive on Mars, but it also gives you the means to actually make use of your environment and actually use it to enhance the building itself. So we are really, really looking forward to the possibility of what architects on Earth will be able to eventually use our machine for with this same perspective. I mean, maybe someday we might see habitats in Dubai or the Sahara that are able to do kind of the same thing as what Mars City Design and Redworks are looking at for Team Alpha. How long have you been working on this idea? Well, the 3D printing side of it was kind of a backburner idea for a long time. Originally, we were looking at solving just the habitat system and the 3D printing solution we were looking into was very much, it's not even the same solution anymore, to be honest. The 3D printing solution was was not even in its infancy when we got started. So we originally began as a team in about June of 2015 as a design team. And we worked pretty much nonstop through about September, end of September 2015 on this NASA 3D print habitat challenge. And that was mostly focused on trying to come up with better solutions for living on Mars using completely in-situ means of building and really how to kind of approach the logic of 3D printing for construction. After that was said and done, we still kind of approached this whole challenge from a design team perspective. And the 3D printing side of this technology, of this solution we were looking into, this habitat we designed, began to become a more dominant part of the team as a whole, to the point to by the end of 2016, right around when you and I got the chance to meet for the first time, we were able to start looking at this as the more viable business model for the future of Redworks to where we could stop being just a design team. We could actually become a formal company. So in January, 2017, we officially switched from being a, essentially just a little design team to an actual startup. We joined Ellen Chang and the Lightspeed Innovations team as part of their accelerator. We went through that entire cohort uh, and were done by May, upon which we'd already formed as a corporation. So really for the last 18 months or so, we've been an actual business trying to make this thing happen for real, not just as a design project. Gotcha. So yeah. I'm sure you thought of this before, but if you could 3D print your own house, either on Mars or on Earth, what would it look like? Oh, that's a dangerous question. Uh, <laughs> probably because if I say what it is, I'll reveal myself to be incredibly tasteless. Uh, <laughs> I am a sucker for medieval and Enlightenment era architecture, so I'd probably just 3D print some strange, ungodly mishmash of medieval castlery combined with uh, Art Nouveau uh, decor <laughs> around the whole thing. So don't ever let me design my own house. <laughs> well, I guess it opens up a whole realm of possibilities for people who do want to design very unique houses. <laughs> and that is honestly my greatest fear that yeah. I will have unleashed upon the world a decade of tacky art design for uh, for architecture. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to have been here. And this was a lot of fun. 
This is Elizabeth Fernandez for Spark Dialogue Podcast. If you're curious about what one of these 3D printed buildings might look like on Mars, check out the show notes at sparkdialogue.com. While you're at it, if you wouldn't mind helping the show in a small way, you could leave a review on Stitcher. When you're at sparkdialogue.com, click on the icon that says Stitcher, then scroll down to write a review. We hope to see you again in two weeks for another episode. This is Elizabeth Fernandez, and as always, thanks for listening.